Welcome to another episode of the Below the Void podcast. My name is Donovan, and I am coming to you today solo, without the other boys, unfortunately. Um, We just, you know, weren't able to make our schedules work, and it's just been so long um, since we've had an episode out that I decided I had to really get some content out there for you guys. So this episode's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. Um, Because I'm alone, it's probably going to go a little bit quicker, probably going to be shorter. It's definitely going to be less funny you know i don't really intend to be able to riff off of myself like i can with the other guys um but i hope the episode is still entertaining and uh informative i've got a couple of topics that i want to talk about today uh that i think are really interesting and that i hope will keep your guys's attention um and you know what there's probably going to be more solo episodes in the future whether it's me or whether it's one of the other guys um you know we don't do this for a living we've all got jobs, uh, family, friends, all that sort of thing. And it can be tough to make uh, four people's schedules align to make this stuff happen. So you have my apologies for that. Um, But real quick, let's just get into a couple of bookkeeping things. Um, First of all, I just want to reiterate that if you guys have any sort of um, experiences you want to share with us, info at belowthevoid.com is our email address. Um, We would absolutely love to hear your stories, Um, whether it's firsthand or whether it's something you heard, whether it's something that you wholeheartedly believe is true or whether it's simply a great story that you told or that you've been told please just send it to us. Well, we would love to hear uh, what you guys have to say. And, you know, we can, I know people are listening to the show. Um, It's just really hard for us to um, entice people to actually leave their experiences. Honestly, that's, that would, nothing would make me happier than to um, get some experiences. in. so please uh, info at below the void.com for any experiences you might have. Um, and you know, if you're, if you're concerned about, um, you know, judgment, first of all, you're not going to get that from us. We might joke about stuff, but you will absolutely not get judgment from us. Um, But if you want to keep it anonymous, absolutely fine. Um, if you want to let us know who you are, but don't want us to read your name on air, absolutely. Just let us know. That's not a problem at all. Another thing I wanted to bring up, um, I did recently have a chat with my good friend Dana, who has a YouTube channel under the name Lady Lucy. Um, I will leave a link in this show, uh, the show notes, to her channel so you can uh, take a listen to her. She's great. She talks about um, her experiences as a practicing pagan. Um, really good stuff. And she's just such a sweet, lovely person. Um, please show her your support. Um, I had a Great conversation with her the other day on her channel, um, talking about this podcast mostly and and the paranormal kind of things that I've experienced. Um, It was a really fun chat, and I'd love for you guys to check that out. So I will leave a link to her channel and to that video specifically in the show notes for this episode. So uh, the reason I really wanted to get, you know, 
behind the mic and talk about stuff is because um, a new video game has come out recently that actually ties into a subject that we talked about on our previous podcast when we were still going by um, Beyond the Veil. So we talked about a ghost ship of sorts um, called the SS Orang Medan. Um, Now, you may remember it. It's a really creepy story. Um, Essentially, it is a, a ship that it made a distress call and when the rescuers came everyone on the ship was dead um really creepy story that we're, we're going to get into the details of it again here in a little bit because i i have um a source that i think has made the story a little more cohesive that we can actually kind of piece together a narrative of what may have happened um if anything happened at all with this orang medan but the game that I'm talking about um, is actually called The Dark Pictures Man of Medan. Um, Orang Medan, I believe, is a melee term that rough, roughly translates to Man of Medan. And what this game is about is essentially uh, a group of people stumble upon a ghost ship. And it is the Man of Medan. I have not played this game yet. So I can't tell you how closely it sticks to, you know, the details of the story. But I thought it was really neat that there's actually a game out there that's getting some press um, that's based on a topic that we've actually talked about before. Um, Now, the game is, you know, it's not made by nobodies. Um, It's actually put out by Supermassive Games, who you may know if you've played the game Until Dawn, um, which I I highly recommend if you're a fan of uh, slasher flicks. Um, It's a fantastic kind of interactive um, adventure game, uh, horror game kind of hybrid, um, where you control a group of, of teenagers in a cabin being sort of picked off one by one by this um, slasher slash supernatural entity. I won't get it into what it actually is because if you've not played until dawn, I don't want to spoil it. And it's actually a great, great experience. So, you know, please, if you have a PS4 and you like horror, check out until dawn. Um, but this studio, uh, now is putting out this, what they're calling the Dark Pictures Anthology, which sounds like it's going to be a series of stories, probably, um, you know, shorter, um, shorter experiences over uh, a period of time. I believe the next installment is due out sometime next year. Um, the first one came out just a couple weeks ago um, on August 30th of 2019. And again, it's called Dark Pictures Anthology Man of Medan. So just real briefly, I'm going to read you the premise here. And this is just from the the Wikipedia page for this game. It says four Americans, brothers Alex and Brad Smith, Alex's girlfriend Julia and her brother Conrad, travel to the South Pacific Ocean on a dive boat called the Duke of Milan, accompanied by the boat's captain, uh, Fliss Dubois, for an underwater diving expedition in search of a submerged World War II plane wreck. But as the day progresses and a storm approaches, unexpected events cause the friends to become trapped on board of a large ghost ship, later discovered to be the fabled Orang Medan, where their worst nightmares become reality. With their safety threatened, their sanity tested, and their survival at stake, the group must make swift life-or-death choices that could either lead them to freedom or cause them to suffer fatal consequences. Um, 
So what they're kind of getting at with that is that much like Until Dawn, based on the choices that you make in the game determines who lives and who dies. So as far as I'm aware, um, you can play through the game in a way where literally every character dies or where literally everyone survives based upon the choices you make and what kind of things you make them do. Which is a, a really cool idea. It worked really well in Until Dawn. I'm really looking forward to going through this. Um, I think we will we'll end up doing this, whether we do it um, you know, on stream where we're recording it for you guys, whether or not it's going to be in private and we just talk about it later is sort of to be determined. Um, but that's sort of what this, what this is about and why my interest in the SS Orang Medan story kind of came up again. So now that we've got that sort of out of the way, um, let's go and take a look at the actual story. Now, some of this stuff you will, you know, if you've listened to us when we were still potting under uh, Beyond the Veil, some of this you will undoubtedly remember. Um, so I apologize if this is covering ground that uh, that you've already, you know, that we've already been over, but um, just to get everyone on the same page, we're going to kind of start from the beginning. Um, <clears throat> so, real quick, this is from historicmysteries.com, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite websites. Um, and it's called The Tragedy on the SS Orang Medan, Fact or Legend. So the article begins, Maritime history is full of tales of ghost ships and sea serpents. Not all of these are true and accurate accounts, or if they are, they are prone to exaggerations and embellishment. Stories like these are hotly debated between believers and skeptics. While some of these tales originate centuries ago, one of the more cur curious tales uh, is mere decades old, and this is the story of the SS Orang Medan. Depending on which report is accurate, a curious radio message was received by numerous ships traveling along the Straits of Malacca, situated around Sumatra and Malaysia, in either June 1947 or as late as February 1948. At the time, the origins of this message, and SOS, were not known. The message itself was divided into two parts, separated by Morse code that could not be deciphered. Those that received this message insisted that, that the transcript went... <clears throat> All officers, including the captain, are dead, lying in chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead. I die. Nothing else was transmitted after this chilling conclusion. Two ships, both American, picked up the messages and felt compelled to investigate. With the help of British and Dutch listening posts, the coordinates of the vessel thought to be transmitting were triangulated. It was the Dutch freighter SS Orang Medan. An American merchant ship, the Silver Star, was sent to the coordinates. Given the content of the distress calls, the captain of the Silver Star wasted no time in navigating to the new heading. Several hours later, the lookout on board the Silver Star spotted the stricken Orang Medan. Even as the rescue ship pulled alongside, no signs of life could be seen visually. All efforts to contact the crew failed, forcing the captain of the Silver Star to organize a search, a search party. <clears throat> Pardon me. The moment that the search party boarded, it was obvious that the messages were horribly accurate. The decks of the Orang Madame were littered with the corpses of the Dutch crew. The victims were found with wide-eyed horror and their faces twisted into sheer terror, arms trying to fight off something. Not even the ship's dog escaped the terror of whatever had taken place. The canine was discovered to be in the midst of snarling at the cause. The captain was found, as one might have expected, on his bridge. The remainder of the bridge officers were found in the wheelhouse and chart room. The radio operator, who presumably sent the distress call, was found at his station. The engineering crew was also found at their stations with precisely the same expressions on their faces. 
During the search efforts, the rescue party noticed several things that struck them as odd or strange. The local temperature was in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but members of the team felt an ominous chill emanating from somewhere. Another oddity was the conditions of the victims. All of them had suffered, but none had any injuries to note. They were decaying quicker than they should be. The ship itself didn't appear to have suffered any damage. When the search party returned to the Silver Star, the decision on how the Orang, uh, excuse me, the decision to tow the Orang Medan for salvage was quickly taken. It was only when the ships were tethered together that smoke was discovered below decks, specifically the number four cargo hold. Within seconds of the tow rope being severed, the Orang Medan exploded with enough force to lift it out of the water before it sank to the seabed. The first official mention of the incident was made by the United States Coast Guard in May 1952. In addition to the witness testimony of the state of the crew themselves, the published account added that they were all found with, and this is a quote, their frozen faces upturned to the sun, staring as if in fear, the mouths were gaping open and the eyes staring. So the question at this point is, is the story true? Now, you notice at the beginning of the story, they're not sure if it happened in June of 1947 or possibly even as late as February of 1948. So obviously, this is not an event where concrete records exist. Now, at this stage in history, in the 1940s, uh, records should have been keep should have been kept of this stuff. I mean, that's not maybe not as precise of records as we would have today, um, but it should be easy enough to spot, you know, even at, at least the month when something like this happens. So already there's some sort of red flags. So the article from here on is sort of, it's going to ask that question. Now, is this something true or is this false? Um, so we're going to go over a couple of scenarios here. One of the arguments cited against this even uh, ever taking place was the registry of the Orang Medan. Officially speaking, it appeared as though it never actually existed, although the Silver Star was a real vessel. At the time the Orang Medan was supposed to have been floundering, the Silver Star was operating under another registration, the Santa Juana. The Grace Line Shipping Company had bought rights to the ship and had renamed it. In contrast, those that believe in the Orang Medan story insist that the ship was registered in Sumatra. At the time, Sumatra was a Dutch colony that formed part of what is now uh, what was known as the Dutch East Indies. In Indonesia, Orang means man, and Medan is the largest city on the island of Sumatra. Hence, the registered name Orang Medan literally means man from Medan. No records have been produced to back up this assertion. Excuse me, this assertion. <laughs> Uh, okay, so it's not just the other guys here that caused me to uh, trip over my words, so uh, you're just going to have to deal with my dumb ass. So, no records have been produced to back up this assertion. Even Lloyd's shipping registers and the Dictionary of Disasters at Sea, 1824 to 1962, has found no mention of the Orang Medan. Um, so we're going to get into something now, um, pardon my, my German, I've been out of high school for a while, um, the booklet Das Totenschiefen der Sudzi, 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, apologies if I butchered that. Professor Theodore Seesdorfer of Essen in Germany had spent much of the last 50 years researching the story of the Orang Madame. Seesdorfer was the first to mention the names of the American ships that originally went in pursuit of the Orang Madame and refers anyone interested in their own research to a German booklet written in 1954. The author of this publication was a man called Otto Milky, and seemingly he knew a lot about the mysterious ship. Not just the route it took, the cargo it carried, but the name of the captain. The booklet, called, as I butchered earlier, Das Totenschiefen der Zudzi, established the date as June 1947 and is often rumored to have been authenticated by a crewman aboard the Silver Star, which you will remember um, supposedly is the ones that came upon this ship. Uh, it was this booklet that mentioned the cargo hold and what might have been stored inside. According to this booklet, the cargo holds contained potassium cyanide and nitroglycerin. If this is actually true, it could explain why there are no official records anywhere. Certainly, having these combustible items on a rough sea is tantamount to negligence of the most severe kind. It could also explain the subsequent explosion shortly after the salvage attempt was made. So... One of the theories is that it was carrying cargo that was illicit and or um, carried negligently, and that led to the deaths of, of people. Now, I don't know why you would ever store potassium cyanide and nitroglycerin on the same ship. That seems cartoonishly stupid. Um, but I do believe if, if, for example, water were to have gotten into the potassium cyanide, that it could have created a poisonous gas, which may have been able to kill the entire crew. I also, I don't know if it's true in gas form, but I know if you have potassium cyanide poisoning, it's supposed to be excruciating. Um, you know, it's it's not like the movies where you take a pill and you foam from the mouth for a second and die. It's supposed to be very excruciating to die from cyanide poisoning. So that could maybe account for the dead bodies and the state of their bodies having no real injuries, but, you know, being dead and having their faces contorted in fear. Perhaps it wasn't fear. Maybe it was pain. And then nitroglycerin, yeah, I guess that could explain why the ship conveniently exploded when they tried to tow it. So uh, th that's that's one sort of uh, sort of theory that was put out there by Otto Mielke in his booklet Das Totenschiefen der Sudzi. <clears throat> that's the last time I'm going to say that. I promise. Um, another another kind of ominous um, theory dates back to World War II and to a, uh, a Japanese biological weapons unit called Unit 731. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to stop right here for a quick second and just say if you don't know what Unit 731 is and you don't want to sleep for a while, like several days, go ahead and just look at the Wikipedia page for Unit 731. Um, horrific, horrific shit was done by this group. Um, it was a group of Japanese scientists, uh, you know, of the Imperial Japanese Army. This was during World War II, um, so yeah, there was there was some bad stuff going on. But the the level of cruelty and just malice that Unit Seven Thirty One was responsible for is uh, really really mind bending. And the fact that this could be tied into them in any way is is really interesting. So. Let's get into this theory real quick. 
There were those who speculated that the ship was actually carrying a far more sinister and altogether more dangerous cargo. Biological weapons manufactured by Japanese scientists as a result of insidious experiments that even the Nazi regime would balk at could well have been smuggled out of Japan. Known as Unit 731, it was designed to be a secret research and development team meant to create the most dangerous chemical and biological weapons to help establish Japanese supremacy. Unit 731 was formed sometime in 1932 by a Japanese bacteriologist called Shiro Ishii, who conducted terrible experiments during the Second World War. Is it feasible that Unit 731 was smuggled on a nondescript merchant vessel with a foreign crew to avoid drawing unwanted attention to what was taking place? And if so, what went horribly wrong? Comparisons to the Philadelphia experiment have been made by some ufologists. Wraiths have also been blamed for whatever happened aboard the ill-fated ship. The unnatural deaths of the entire crew have lent some form of credibility to these and uh, other causes that imaginations have conjured up in the last half of a century. Even undead pirates, not unlike the crew of the fictional Black Pearl, have been blamed by some... <laughs> Was the tragedy on the SS Orang Medan a genuine event or just a mariner seafaring tale designed to scare, frighten, and dissuade? Unfortunately, we just don't have any real answers. And as much as I love this story, I mean, I really do. It has so much intrigue. Um, I I just don't buy it as a real thing. I think there's just too many, too many red flags that just kind of are screaming at me about this story. Just the fact that no one can agree on a date. No one can find a definitive proof that the, the ship even began. And of course, the conspiracy theory of um, maybe they wanted to hide negligence or wrongdoing. It's really interesting, uh, but I, I, I just don't buy it. Now, I would love to know what you guys think. If you guys think, you know, this you know could be something that's real, or if you kind of agree with me that uh, it's a great story, but doesn't really pass the sniff test. I'd love to know your thoughts. Um, feel free to let us know. So, you know, send us an email, um, you know, leave us a comment on our, our show page. Um, let us know what you think. We, we want to get you guys involved in this show. Um, but I'm going to take a real quick break here, get myself something to drink. I feel like I've been blabbering on a while and uh, I'll be right back.
right, everybody, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that brief musical interlude. Now, that story sort of something out of history um, that may or may not be true reminded me of a story that I had heard quite a while ago. Um, full credit to, I, I believe it was Mysterious Universe where I, I first heard this story. Um, and I guarantee you they told it better than I'm going to. But I do need to... Um, I need, need to talk about this because this is a story that has really stayed in my mind, much like the Orang Medan story did, as something that is just eerie and bizarre and and just really cool. I love this story. Um, so this account of it is from a website called Paranorms.com, and it's written by Les Hewitt. So full credit to him for this. It's called The Strange Tale of the Lost Village at Anjakuni Lake. Where is Anjakuni Lake? It can be found deep in the Kivalig region of rural Nunavut in Canada. Nestled along the Kazan River, it is a fine spot for trout and pike fishing, both of which are plentiful in the waters of the area. Anjakuni quickly became the established home to an Inuit tribe that grew into a colony and became famous almost overnight on a cold November day in 1930. Joe LaBelle was a Canadian fur trapper and an experienced one at that. He was more than cap he was a more than capable outdoorsman and was well acquainted with the area. He knew that the Inuit had formed a community and he had visited them on several occasions in the past. LaBelle was familiar with the Inuit tales of wood spirits that were allegedly malicious and that this remote part of Canada was also steeped in the legends of the Wendigo. Despite this, the Inuit tribe were a friendly people and would always welcome passing travelers and offer them a bed for the night. LaBelle normally had very little cause to feel gripped by fear or anxiety, but this particular night at Anjakuni Lake proved to be different. The full moon was overhead. Uh, it cast an eerie illumination across the village. Nothing was moving. The army of huskies that were normally boisterous with the arrival of visitors were strangely quiet as well. The only sounds that LaBelle could hear were his own snowshoes and the hollow echo of his greeting. A frontier man such as LaBelle would immediately understand that something was terribly amiss. He began to investigate upon entering the village. The normal signs of life were completely absent. No laughter or the hollow of conversation was detected. Even worse was the total lack of smoke emanating from chimneys that indicated the presence of life. LaBelle did notice that a fire had been started off in the distance and made his way toward it. The fire itself looked as though it had been burning for a considerable time. On closer inspection, LaBelle discovered that someone had begun the preparations for a meal, but never finished it. The stew was ruined. LaBelle continued onwards further into the village, still hopeful of bumping into someone that may explain precisely what had happened. Now rampant, Joe began to physically examine the homes of the tribe to determine if there was a hint or clue as to what might have caused them to up and leave. Unfortunately, no answers were forthcoming. Some of the discoveries he made were telling. Many homes were well-stocked with food and weapons. In one location, LaBelle found another badly burned meal. In another, he found a discarded repair of a junior seal skin that had yet to be completed. While there was no definitive answer regarding what had taken place, it must surely have been an event that was widespread and affected all 30 men, women, and children in the village. LaBelle found no signs of a struggle, but did find many items that a departing group would have, been, uh, would have required to bring with them. Food, arms, and clothing had all been abandoned. So, <clears throat> right away, the thing that strikes me about this is you have... Now, 
I want you to take a look at a map if you don't know where, where none of it is. It is the far north, kind of central Canada, and it is so remote that to this day, I believe the entire province of none of it, which is like, I believe it's bigger than Minnesota and Wisconsin combined. Like it's it's a big piece of land. It has like 30,000 people in the entirety of it. So this is remote. And now you have to imagine that this is 1930. And you have this fur trapper coming across this village completely abandoned. And I, I imagine that they are far enough out into the sticks that... These are not going to be people who are going to depart and leave items like food, weapons, and clothing. So, the story continues. Further investigations uh, led to a pair of discoveries that chilled the blood of even this hardened veteran. As far as he was able to tell, whatever took place was quite a recent occurrence. He had exhausted all fruitless efforts to find someone within the village. The bewildered trapper instead considered where they might have ended up going. Scanning the terrain in and around the village, he found no fresh tracks in the snow aside from his own. The most gruesome discovery he made was the reason for the absence of the dogs. Every single one of them had starved to death. This was more than enough to convince him to continue onwards to the closest telegraph office located several miles further on. That did mean LaBelle would have to ignore basic necessities such as food and shelter, but he was eager to leave the Erie village and retrieve help. So you have all of their dogs, which I assume they're all huskies, starved to death, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that it's, I mean, dogs don't starve to death quickly. No, they will starve to death much quicker than a human can who can go three weeks without food um, in extreme scenarios without dying. But I know dogs can go several days. And the fact that it seems whatever happened happened relatively quickly, you know, from the fact that there was food that was made that wasn't finished, you know, like the stew was ruined. Um, it doesn't really line up with the timeline of the people disappearing before the dogs would have um, needed to be fed, if that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> it seems like the dogs would have had to have been starving already before the people disappeared, which is odd to me. It's oddly more disturbing that, you know, just to me, because, again, they're not going to let their dogs starve to death purposely and... You know, whatever is going on here is possibly um, more sinister than than I think, you know, we might originally think, you know, because what what I would think if someone abandons a village in the middle of, you know, the tundra in none of it, Canada, I'm imagining like um, a bear attack, like a, a giant polar bear comes in, scares everybody off or, you know, something like that, uh, a a pack of wolves, something that makes something natural that makes it not habitable. But the thought that whatever was happening was happening and people were perhaps making food for themselves while their dogs were starving. I think it, it's, it's bizarre. So the article goes on to say that the, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, launch an investigation. So LaBelle reaches the telegraph office. He reports his encounter 
and he insists that the RCMP launch an official uh, investigation. En route to the village, the RCMP noticed an isolated shack that belonged to another trapper named Armand Laurent and his two sons. When questioned, they said they saw a large cylindrical object that transformed into a bullet shape before heading toward Anjakuni Lake. Unconfirmed reports also claimed that what the RCMP actually reached the village, they found that every grave in the burial ground had been opened and emptied. The headstones had been neatly stacked in piles on either side of the graves, ruling out animals as the culprits. So, what we're seeing here then is... Now, again, it says unconfirmed reports, which obviously is the first red flag here. And then you get a really sensational bit of story that the graves are empty. Um, So the graveyard, the graves have been dug up and they know it wasn't an animal because the headstones were neatly stacked in piles on either side of the graves. So if that's true, that's an incredibly creepy thing. And, And... Obviously, you have the the light in the sky or the object in the sky, which sort of brings kind of an alien UFO um, kind of flavor to this whole story. We've got a lot, a lot of stuff going on here. So, unfortunately, the investigation leads nowhere. The RCMP conducts an intense and thorough investigation, but could not produce one credible reason uh, as to what had happened. What little leeway they made just led to even more questions that only served to deepen the mystery. It was their conclusion that the Inuit people had been missing for about eight weeks prior to LaBelle's arrival. Now, if we assume that's accurate, how had the dogs managed to starve so quickly? Uh, now, I'm not sure what they mean by that, how the dogs managed to starve so quickly, because <clears throat> eight weeks is... A long time. And I, I know that's not necessarily eight weeks without food, because if they were gone for eight weeks, then the dogs, you know, would fend for themselves for a while. But still, I'm, I'm not really sure, you know, I'm not really sure where he's getting the, the, the quickly part. But anyways, um, there was time for burning food to be discovered, and the dogs themselves were a vital tool for the tribe as a whole, so it seemed inconceivable that they would intentionally cause harm or distress the animals in any way. And if they had been missing for two months, who lit the fire that LaBelle found smoldering? Which is my question as well. Who lit the fire, and and who was making the stew that was ruined? Um... Unfortunately, this is one mass disappearance, much like the Roanoke colony, that will most likely never be solved, or at least never solved to anyone's or to everyone's satisfaction. And unfortunately, that's kind of where the story ends. It seems the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police did launch an investigation. This does seem to be true that, that the investigation happened, but it also seems to be true that it really didn't lead anywhere. Um... And at the end of the day, I don't know how much stock they put into a 30-person village in the middle of nowhere disappearing. I I think they might have officially just, they think that they they packed up and left, despite, um, you know, what our our fur trapper here, Joe LaBelle, is is saying. If his story is, is true and accurate, then obviously there's something really sinister going on here. And I just think that's a, a, a great story. I heard it several, several years ago. It's something that I always, you know, that always pops into my mind occasionally. And I, I 
just wanted to talk about it on the podcast and let you guys know about it. So um, let me know if, what you think about it, uh, the story at Andrew Cooney Lake. If, if it's something you've heard, if it reminds you of something you might have heard, let us know. Um, love to hear your thoughts on it. All right, guys. Well, I think I've been yapping on quite long enough. Um, I want to thank you all for listening to this sort of first solo episode of Below the Void. I hope we can get, you know, the boys back together quickly and, and put out a, a standard episode full of um, comedy and, and bullshit and all that stuff for you. Um but, you know, in the meantime, I, I hope this was at least entertaining. I hope you, you learned something. You, you maybe um, had your thoughts provoked a bit. Real quick before we go, I want to give uh, a quick, quick shout out to a, a video game that I've been playing recently that is uh, absolutely phenomenal and really, really kind of lines up really well with the, the subject matter of this show. The game is called Control. Um, it's by Remedy, the team who's behind one of, in my opinion, the greatest horror games of all time, Alan Wake. Um, they're also responsible for Max Payne and Max Payne 2 um, and the very underrated, in my opinion, Quantum Break from a few years ago. Um, their new game, Control, is a supernatural-tinged third-person shooter um, where you... Explore the headquarters of the United States Bureau of Control. What that is, is essentially a government agency responsible for handling paranormal things. Um, paranormal, not so much like, you know, ghosts and aliens, but extra dimensional things, things that manipulate dimensions and, and time and reality itself. Um, if you're familiar with a series of, uh, of sort of creepypastas called SCP, it's very similar to that. Uh, most of the items in the game are, are what's called like items of power, objects of power um, that have really unique, weird properties. I don't want to spoil any of it because it really is just a treat to play through. Um, the game constantly surprised me. Um, I was always delighted. It was just a great, great game. I cannot... Uh, recommend it enough if you know if you're a fan of um, third-person action games if you're a fan of action games in general if you like a good mind-bending story and a lot of cool interesting paranormal elements especially some stuff that maybe you probably haven't even thought of before definitely check out control it gets my highest recommendation um, and with that, I think we're going to wrap up here, folks. So thank you so much for going on this journey with me. I hope I have not bored you to tears. Um, and, and just thank you guys so much. I mean, I know I say this every time, but the fact that anyone is out there listening, um, it means the world to me. Um, thank you so, so much. And we'll talk to you again next time. Bye-bye.